Chapter 6 of McTeague. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. McTeague by Frank Norris. Chapter 6. No, Trina did not know. Do I love him? Do I love him? A thousand times she put the question to herself during the next two or three days. At night she hardly slept, but lay broad awake for hours in her little gaily painted bed, with its white netting, torturing herself with doubts and questions. At times she remembered the scene in the station with a veritable agony of shame, and at other times she was ashamed to recall it with a thrill of joy. Nothing could have been more sudden, more unexpected, than that surrender of herself. For over a year she had thought that Marcus would some day be her husband. They would be married, she supposed, some time in the future. She did not know exactly when. The matter did not take definite shape in her mind. She liked Cousin Mark very well. And then suddenly this cross-current had set in. This blonde giant had appeared, this huge, stolid fellow, with his immense, crude strength. She had not loved him at first, that was certain. The day he had spoken to her in his parlors, she had only been terrified. If he had confined himself to merely speaking, as did Marcus, to pleading with her, to wooing her at a distance, forestalling her wishes, showing her little attentions, sending her boxes of candy, she could have easily withstood him. But he had only to take her in his arms, to crush down her struggle with his enormous strength, to subdue her, conquer her by sheer brute force, and she gave up in an instant. But why? why had she done so why did she feel the desire the necessity of being conquered by a superior strength why did it please her why had it suddenly thrilled her from head to foot with a quick terrifying gust of passion the like of which she had never known never at his best had marcus made her feel like that and yet she had always thought she cared for cousin mark more than for any one else when McTeague had all at once caught her in his huge arms, something had leaped to life in her, something that had hitherto lain dormant, something strong and overpowering. It frightened her now as she thought of it, this second self that had wakened within her, and that shouted and clamored for recognition. And yet, was it to be feared? Was it something to be ashamed of? Was it not, after all, natural, clean, spontaneous? Trina knew that she was a pure girl, knew that this sudden commotion within her carried with it no suggestion of vice. Dimly, as figures seen in a waking dream, these ideas floated through Trina's mind. It was quite beyond her to realize them clearly. She could not know what they meant. Until that rainy day by the shore of the bay, Trina had lived her life with as little self-consciousness as a tree. She was frank, straightforward, a healthy, natural human being, without sex as yet. She was almost like a boy, at once there had been a mysterious disturbance. The woman within her suddenly awoke. Did she love McTeague? Difficult question. Did she choose him for better or for worse, deliberately, of her own free will? Or was Trina herself allowed even a choice in the taking of that step that was to make or mar her life? The woman is awakened, and starting from her sleep, catches blindly at what first her newly opened eyes light upon. It is a spell, a witchery, ruled by chance alone inexplicable, a fairy queen enamored of a clown with ass's ears. McTeague had awakened the woman, and whether she would or no, she was his now irrevocably. Struggle against it as she would, she belonged to him, body and soul, for life or for death. She had not sought it. She had not desired it. The spell was laid upon her. Was it a blessing? Was it a curse? It was all one. She was his, indissolubly, for evil or for good. And he? 
The very act of submission that bound the woman to him forever had made her seem less desirable in his eyes. Their undoing had already begun. Yet neither of them was to blame. From the first they had not sought each other. Chance had brought them face to face, and mysterious instincts as ungovernable as the winds of heaven were at work knitting their lives together. Neither of them had asked that this thing should be, that their destinies, their very souls, should be the sport of chance. If they could have known, they would have shunned the fearful risk. But they were allowed no voice in the matter. Why should it all be? It had been on a Wednesday that the scene in the B Street station had taken place. Throughout the rest of the week, at every hour of the day, Trina asked herself the same question. Do I love him? Do I really love him? Is this what love is like? As she recalled McTeague, recalled his huge, square-cut head, his salient jaw, his shock of yellow hair, his heavy, lumbering body, his slow wits, she found little to admire in him beyond his physical strength, and at such moments she shook her head decisively. No, surely she did not love him. Sunday afternoon, however, McTeague called. Trina had prepared a little speech for him. She was to tell him that she did not know what had been the matter with her that Wednesday afternoon, that she had acted like a bad girl, that she did not love him well enough to marry him, that she had told him as much once before. McTeague saw her alone in the little front parlor. The instant she appeared, he came straight towards her. She saw what he was bent upon doing. "'Wait a minute,' she cried, putting out her hands. "'Wait. You don't understand. I have got something to say to you.' She might as well have talked to the wind. McTeague put aside her hands with a single gesture, and gripped her to him in a bear-like embrace that all but smothered her. Trina was but a reed before that giant strength. McTeague turned her face to his and kissed her again upon the mouth. Where was all Trina's resolve then? Where was her carefully prepared little speech? Where was all her hesitation and torturing doubts of the last few days? She clasped McTeague's huge red neck with both her slender arms. She raised her adorable little chin and kissed him in return, exclaiming, "'Oh, I do love you. I do love you.' Never afterward were the two so happy as at that moment. A little later in that same week, when Marcus and McTeague were taking lunch at the car conductor's coffee joint, the former suddenly exclaimed, "'Say, Mac, now that you've got Trina, you ought to do more for her. By damn, you ought to for a fact.' "'Why don't you take her out somewhere, to the theater, or somewhere? "'You ain't on to your job.' "'Naturally, McTeague had told Marcus of his success with Trina. "'Marcus had taken on a grand air. "'You've got her, have you? "'Well, I'm glad of it, old man. "'I am for a fact. "'I know you'll be happy with her. "'I know how I would have been. "'I forgive you. "'Yes, I forgive you freely.' "'McTeague had not thought of taking Trina to the theater. "'You think I ought to, Mark?' he inquired, hesitating. Marcus answered, with his mouth full of suet pudding. "'Why, of course. That's the proper caper.' "'Well, well, that's so. The theater. That's the word. "'Take her to the variety show at the Orpheum. "'There's a good show there this week. "'You'll have to take Mrs. Sipa, too, of course,' he added. Marcus was not sure of himself as regarded certain proprieties, nor, for that matter, were any of the people of the little world of Polk Street. The shop girls, the plumber's apprentices, the small tradespeople, and their like, whose social position was not clearly defined, could never be sure how far they could go, and yet preserve their respectability. When they wished to be proper, they invariably overdid the thing. It was not as if they belonged to the tough element, who had no appearances to keep up. Polk Street rubbed elbows with the avenue one block above. There were certain limits which its dwellers could not overstep, but unfortunately for them, these limits were poorly defined.
They could never be sure of themselves. At an unguarded moment they might be taken for toughs, so they generally erred in the other direction, and were absurdly formal. No people have a keener eye for the amenities than those whose social position is not assured. "'Oh, sure, you'll have to take her mother,' insisted Marcus. "'It wouldn't be the proper racket if you didn't.' McTeague undertook the affair. It was an ordeal. Never in his life had he been so perturbed, so horribly anxious. He called upon Trina the following Wednesday and made arrangements. Mrs. Sipa asked if little Auguste might be included. It would console him for the loss of his steamboat. "'Sure, sure,' said McTeague. "'Auguste, too. Everybody,' he added, vaguely. "'We always have to leave so early,' complained Trina, "'in order to catch the last boat, just when it's becoming interesting.' At this, McTeague, acting upon a suggestion of Marcus Scholler's, insisted they should stay at the flat overnight. Marcus and the dentist would give up their rooms to them and sleep at the dog hospital. There was a bed there in the sick ward that old Grannis sometimes occupied when a bad case needed watching. All at once McTeague had an idea, a veritable inspiration. And we'll, we'll, we'll have... What's the matter with having something to eat afterward in my parlors? Very good, commented Mrs. Sipa. Beer, eh? and some tamales. Oh, I love tamales, exclaimed Trina, clasping her hands. McTeague returned to the city, rehearsing his instructions over and over. The theater party began to assume tremendous proportions. First of all, he was to get the seats, the third or fourth row from the front, on the left-hand side, so as to be out of the hearing of the drums in the orchestra. He must make arrangements about the rooms with Marcus, must get in the beer, but not the tamales, must buy for himself a white lawn tie, so Marcus directed, must look to it that Maria Macapa put his room in perfect order, and finally must meet the Sipas at the ferry slip at half-past seven the following Monday night. The real labor of the affair began with the buying of the tickets. At the theater, McTeague got into wrong entrances, was sent from one wicket to another, was bewildered, confused, misunderstood directions, was at one moment suddenly convinced that he had not enough money with him, and started to return home. Finally, he found himself at the box office wicket. Is it here to buy your seats? How many? Is it here? What night do you want them? Yes, sir, here's the place. McTeague gravely delivered himself of the formula he had been reciting for the last dozen hours. I want four seats for Monday night in the fourth row from the front and on the right-hand side. Right hand as you face the house or as you face the stage? McTeague was dumbfounded. I want to be on the right-hand side, he insisted, stolidly, adding, in order to be away from the drums. Well, the drums are on the right of the orchestra as you face the stage, shouted the other impatiently. You want to the left, then, as you face the house. I want to be on the right-hand side, persisted the dentist. Without a word, the seller threw out four tickets with a magnificent, supercilious gesture. There's four seats on the right-hand side, then, and you're right up against the drums. But I don't want to be near the drums, protested McTeague, beginning to perspire. Do you know what you want at all? said the ticket seller with calmness, thrusting his head at McTeague. The dentist knew that he had hurt this young man's feelings. I want... I want... he stammered. The seller slammed down a plan of the house in front of him and began to explain excitedly. It was the one thing lacking to complete McTeague's confusion. These are your seats, finished the seller, shoving the tickets into McTeague's hands. These are the fourth row from the front and away from the drums. Now are you satisfied? Are they on the right-hand side? I want on the right. No. I want on the left. I want... I don't know. I don't know. The seller roared. McTeague moved slowly away, gazing stupidly at the blue slips of pasteboard. Two girls took his place at the wicket. 
In another moment, McTeague came back, peering over the girl's shoulders and calling to the seller. Are these for Monday night? The other disdained reply. McTeague retreated again timidly, thrusting the tickets into his immense wallet. For a moment he stood thoughtful on the steps of the entrance. Then all at once he became enraged. He did not know exactly why. Somehow he felt himself slighted. Once more he came back to the wicket. You can't make small of me, he shouted over the girl's shoulders. You, you can't make small of me. I'll thump you in the head, you little, you little, you little, little, little pup. The ticket seller shrugged his shoulders wearily. A dollar and a half, he said to the two girls. McTeague glared at him and breathed loudly. Finally, he decided to let the matter drop. He moved away, but on the steps was once more seized with a sense of injury and outraged dignity. You can't make small of me, he called back a last time, wagging his head and shaking his fist. I will, I will, I will, yes, I will. He went off, muttering. At last Monday night came. McTeague met the Sipas at the ferry, dressed in a black Prince Albert coat and his best slate blue trousers, and wearing the made-up lawn necktie that Marcus had selected for him. Trina was very pretty in the black dress that McTeague knew so well. She wore a pair of new gloves. Mrs. Sipa had on lyle thread mitts, and carried two bananas and an orange in a net reticule. For Auguste, she confided to him. Auguste was in a Fauntleroy costume, very much too small for him. Already he had been crying. Would you believe, doctor, dot baby has torn his stocking already? Walking der front you, stop crying. Where is dot policeman? At the door of the theater, McTeague was suddenly seized with a panic terror. He had lost the tickets. He tore through his pockets, ransacked his wallet. They were nowhere to be found. All at once he remembered, and with a gasp of relief, removed his hat and took them out from beneath the sweatband. The party entered and took their places. It was absurdly early. The lights were all darkened. The ushers stood under the galleries in groups, the empty auditorium echoing with their noisy talk. Occasionally a waiter with his tray and clean white apron sauntered up and down the aisle. Directly in front of them was the great iron curtain of the stage, painted with all manner of advertisements. From behind this came a noise of hammering and of occasional loud voices. While waiting they studied their programs. First was an overture by the orchestra, after which came the Gleasons in their mirth-moving musical farce, entitled McMonagall's Courtship. This was to be followed by the Lamont sisters, Winnie and Violet, Serio Comics, and Skirt Dancers. And after this came a great array of other artists and specialty performers, musical wonders, acrobats, lightning artists, ventriloquists, and last of all, the feature of the evening, the crowning scientific achievement of the 19th century, the kinetoscope. McTeague was excited, dazzled. In five years he had not been twice to the theater. Now he beheld himself inviting his girl and her mother to accompany him. He began to feel that he was a man of the world. He ordered a cigar. Meanwhile the house was filling up. A few side brackets were turned on. The ushers ran up and down the aisles, stubs of tickets between their thumb and finger, and from every part of the auditorium could be heard the sharp clap-clapping of the seats as the ushers flipped them down. A buzz of talk arose. In the gallery, a street gamin whistled shrilly and called to some friends on the other side of the house. "'Are they going to begin pretty soon, Ma?' whined Auguste for the fifth or sixth time, adding, "'Say, Ma, can't I have some candy?' A cadaverous little boy had appeared in their aisle, chanting, "'Candies! French mixed candies! Popcorn! Peanuts and candy!' The orchestra entered, each man crawling out from an opening under the stage, hardly larger than the gate of a rabbit hutch. At every instant now the crowd increased. 
there were but few seats that were not taken. The waiters hurried up and down the aisles, their trays laden with beer glasses. A smell of cigar smoke filled the air, and soon a faint blue haze rose from all corners of the house. "'Ma, when are they going to begin?' cried Auguste. As he spoke, the iron advertisement curtain rose, disclosing the curtain proper underneath. This latter curtain was quite an affair. Upon it was painted a wonderful picture. A flight of marble steps led down to a stream of water. Two white swans, their necks arched like the capital letter S, floated about. At the head of the marble steps were two vases filled with red and yellow flowers, while at the foot was moored a gondola. This gondola was full of red velvet rugs that hung over the side and trailed in the water. In the prow of the gondola, a young man in vermilion tights held a mandolin in his left hand and gave his right to a girl in white satin. A King Charles Spaniel, dragging a leading string in the shape of a huge pink sash, followed the girl. Seven scarlet roses were scattered upon the two lowest steps, and eight floated in the water. "'Ain't that pretty, Mac?' exclaimed Trina, turning to the dentist. "'Ma, ain't they going to begin now, wow?' whined Auguste. Suddenly the lights all over the house blazed up. "'Ah!' said everybody, all at once. "'Ain't it crowded?' murmured Mrs. Sipa. Every seat was taken. Many were even standing up. "'I always like it better when there is a crowd,' said Trina. She was in great spirits that evening. Her round, pale face was positively pink. The orchestra banged away at the overture, suddenly finishing with a great flourish of violins. A short pause followed. Then the orchestra played a quick-step strain, and the curtain rose on an interior furnished with two red chairs and a green sofa. A girl in a short blue dress and black stockings entered in a hurry and began to dust the two chairs. She was in a great temper, talking very fast, disclaiming against the new lodger. It appeared that this latter never paid his rent, that he was given to late hours. Then she came down to the footlights and began to sing in a tremendous voice, hoarse and flat, almost like a man's. The chorus of a feeble originality ran, "'Oh, how happy I will be when my darling's face I'll see. Oh, tell him for to meet me in the moonlight, down where the golden lilies bloom.'" The orchestra played the tune of this chorus a second time, with certain variations, while the girl danced to it. She sidled to one side of the stage and kicked, then sidled to the other and kicked again. As she finished with the song, a man, evidently the lodger in question, came in. Instantly McTeague exploded in a roar of laughter. The man was intoxicated. His hat was knocked in. One end of his collar was unfastened and stuck up into his face. His watch chain dangled from his pocket, and a yellow satin slipper was tied to a buttonhole of his vest. His nose was vermilion. One eye was black and blue. After a short dialogue with the girl, a third actor appeared. He was dressed like a little boy, the girl's younger brother. He wore an immense turned-down collar, and was continually doing handsprings and wonderful back somersaults. The act devolved upon these three people, the lodger making love to the girl in the short blue dress, the boy playing all manner of tricks upon him, giving him tremendous digs in the ribs or slaps upon the back that made him cough, pulling chairs from under him, running on all fours between his legs and upsetting him, knocking him over at inopportune moments. Every one of his falls was accentuated by a bang upon the bass drum. The whole humor of the act seemed to consist in the tripping up of the intoxicated lodger. This horseplay delighted McTeague beyond measure. He roared and shouted every time the lodger went down, slapping his knee, wagging his head. Auguste crowed shrilly, clapping his hands and continually asking, "'What did he say, Ma? What did he say?' 
Mrs. Sipa laughed immoderately, her huge fat body shaking like a mountain of jelly. She exclaimed from time to time, Ach Gott, dat fool! Even Trina was moved, laughing demurely, her lips closed, putting one hand with its new glove to her mouth. The performance went on. Now it was the musical marvels, two men extravagantly made up as negro minstrels, with immense shoes and plaid vests. They seemed to be able to wrestle a tune out of almost anything, glass bottles, cigar-box fiddles, strings of sleigh-bells, even graduated brass tubes, which they rubbed with resined fingers. McTeague was stupefied with admiration. "'That's what you call musicians,' he announced gravely. "'Home, sweet home, played upon a trombone. "'Think of that. Art could go no farther.' The acrobats left him breathless. They were dazzling young men with beautifully parted hair, continually making graceful gestures to the audience. In one of them the dentist fancied he saw a strong resemblance to the boy who had tormented the intoxicated lodger and who had turned such marvelous somersaults. Trina could not bear to watch their antics. She turned away her head with a little shudder. "'It always makes me sick,' she explained." The beautiful young lady, the society contralto, in evening dress, who sang the sentimental songs and carried the sheets of music at which she never looked, pleased McTeague less. Trina, however, was captivated. She grew pensive over, You do not love me, no, bid me good-bye and go, and split her new gloves in her enthusiasm when it was finished. Don't you love sad music, Mac? she murmured. Then came the two comedians. They talked with fearful rapidity. Their wit and repartee seemed inexhaustible. "'As I was going down the street yesterday—' "'Ah, as you were going down the street. All right. "'I saw a girl at a window. You saw a girl at a window. "'And this girl, she was a corker. "'Ah, as you were going down the street yesterday, you saw a girl at a window. "'And this girl, she was a corker. All right, go on.' The other comedian went on. The joke was suddenly evolved. A certain phrase led to a song, which was sung with lightning rapidity, each performer making precisely the same gestures at precisely the same instant. They were irresistible. McTeague, though he caught but a third of the jokes, could have listened all night. After the comedians had gone out, the iron advertisement curtain was let down. "'What comes now?' said McTeague, bewildered. "'It's the intermission of fifteen minutes now.' The musicians disappeared through the rabbit hutch, and the audience stirred and stretched itself, most of the young men left their seats. During this intermission, McTeague and his party had refreshments. Mrs. Sipa and Trina had Queen Charlotte's. McTeague drank a glass of beer. Auguste ate the orange and one of the bananas. He begged for a glass of lemonade, which was finally given him. Juice to keep him quiet, observed Mrs. Sipa. But almost immediately after drinking his lemonade, Auguste was seized with a sudden restlessness. He twisted and wriggled in his seat, swinging his legs violently, looking about him with eyes full of a vague distress. At length, just as the musicians were returning, he stood up and whispered energetically in his mother's ear. Mrs. Sipa was exasperated at once. No, no, she cried, reseating him brusquely. The performance was resumed. A lightning artist appeared, drawing caricatures and portraits with incredible swiftness. He even went so far as to ask for subjects from the audience, and the names of prominent men were shouted to him from the gallery. He drew portraits of the President, of Grant, of Washington, of Napoleon Bonaparte, of Bismarck, of Garibaldi, of P.T. Barnum. And so the evening passed. The hall grew very hot, and the smoke of innumerable cigars made the eyes smart. A thick blue mist hung low over the heads of the audience. The air was full of varied smells, the smell of stale cigars, of flat beer, of orange peel, of gas, of sachet powders, and of cheap perfumery. 
one artist after another came upon the stage. McTeague's attention never wandered for a minute. Trina and her mother enjoyed themselves hugely. At every moment they made comments to one another, their eyes never leaving the stage. Ain't dat fool juice too funny? That's a pretty song. Don't you like that kind of song? Wonderful. It's wonderful. Yes, yes, wonderful. That's the word. Auguste, however, lost interest. He stood up in his place, his back to the stage, chewing a piece of orange peel and watching a little girl in her father's lap across the aisle, his eyes fixed in a glassy ox-like stare. But he was uneasy. He danced from one foot to the other, and at intervals appealed in hoarse whispers to his mother, who disdained an answer. Ma, say, ma, he whined, abstractedly chewing his orange peel, staring at the little girl. Ma, say, ma, at times his monotonous plaint reached his mother's consciousness. She suddenly realized what this was that was annoying her. Auguste, will you sit down? She caught him up all at once and jammed him down into his place. Be quiet, den. Look, listen at der young girls. Three young women and a young man who played a zither occupied the stage. They were dressed in Tyrolese costume. They were yodelers and sang in German about mountain tops and bold hunters and the like. The yodeling chorus was a marvel of flute-like modulations. The girls were really pretty and were not made up in the least. Their turn had a great success. Mrs. Sipa was entranced. Instantly she remembered her girlhood and her native Swiss village. Ach, dot is heavenly, juice like der old country. Mein grandmother used to be one of der most famous yodelers. When I was little, I have seen them juiced like that. Ma, began Auguste fretfully, as soon as the yodelers had departed. He could not keep still an instant. He twisted from side to side, swinging his legs with incredible swiftness. Ma, I want to go home. Behave, exclaimed his mother, shaking him by the arm. Look, der little girl is watching you. This is der last time I take you to der blay, you see. I don't care, I'm sleepy. At length, to their great relief, he went to sleep, his head against his mother's arm. The kinetoscope fairly took their breaths away. "'What will they do next?' observed Trina, in amazement. "'Ain't that wonderful, Mac?' McTeague was awestruck. "'Look at that horse move his head,' he cried excitedly, quite carried away. "'Look at that cable car coming, and the man going across the street. See, here comes a truck. Well, I never in all my life. What would Marcus say to this?' "'It's all a drick.' exclaimed Mrs. Sipa, with sudden conviction. I ain't no fool. Dot's nothing but a drick. Well, of course, Mama, exclaimed Trina. It's... But Mrs. Sipa put her head in the air. I'm too old to be fooled, she persisted. It's a drick. Nothing more could be got out of her than this. The party stayed to the very end of the show, though the kinetoscope was the last number but one on the program, and fully half the audience left immediately afterward. However, while the unfortunate Irish comedian went through his act to the backs of the departing people, Mrs. Sipa woke Auguste, very cross and sleepy, and began getting her things together. As soon as he was awake, Auguste began fidgeting again. "'Save der program, Trina,' whispered Mrs. Sipa. "'Take it home to Popper. Where is der hat of Auguste? Have you got mine handkerchief, Trina?' But at this moment a dreadful accident happened to Auguste. His distress reached its climax. His fortitude collapsed. What a misery! It was a veritable catastrophe, deplorable, lamentable, a thing beyond words. For a moment he gazed wildly about him, helpless and petrified with astonishment and terror. Then his grief found utterance, and the closing strains of the orchestra were mingled with a prolonged wail of infinite sadness. "'Auguste, what is it?' cried his mother, eyeing him with dawning suspicion. Then suddenly, 
What have you done? You half ruin your new Vontleroy costume. Her face blazed. Without more ado, she smacked him soundly. Then it was that Auguste touched the limit of his misery, his unhappiness, his horrible discomfort. His utter wretchedness was complete. He filled the air with his doleful outcries. The more he was smacked and shaken, the louder he wept. What? What is the matter? inquired McTeague. Trina's face was scarlet. Nothing, nothing, she exclaimed hastily, looking away. Come, we must be going. It's about over. The end of the show and the breaking up of the audience tided over the embarrassment of the moment. The party filed out at the tail end of the audience. Already the lights were being extinguished, and the ushers spreading drugging over the upholstered seats. McTeague and the Sipas took an uptown car that would bring them near Polk Street. The car was crowded. McTeague and Auguste were obliged to stand. The little boy fretted to be taken in his mother's lap, but Mrs. Sipa emphatically refused. On their way home they discussed the performance. I... I like best der yodlers. Ah, the soloist was the best, the lady who sang those sad songs. Wasn't... wasn't that magic lantern wonderful, where the figures moved? Wonderful. Ah, wonderful. And wasn't that first act funny, where the fellow fell down all the time? And that musical act, and the fellow with the burnt cork face who played Nearer My God to Thee on the beer bottles? They got off at Polk Street and walked up a block to the flat. The street was dark and empty. Opposite the flat, in the back of the deserted market, the ducks and geese were calling persistently. As they were buying their tamales from the half-breed Mexican at the street corner, McTeague observed, "'Marcus ain't gone to bed yet. See, there's a light in his window. There.' he exclaimed at once. I forgot the door key. Well, Marcus can let us in. Hardly had he rung the bell at the street door of the flat when the bolt was shot back. In the hall at the top of the long, narrow staircase, there was the sound of a great scurrying. Maria Macapa stood there, her hand upon the rope that drew the bolt. Marcus was at her side. Old Grannis was in the background, looking over their shoulders, while little Miss Baker leant over the banisters, a strange man in a drab overcoat at her side. As McTeague's party stepped into the doorway, a half-dozen voices cried, "'Yes, it's them. Is that you, Mac? Is that you, Miss Sipa? Is your name Trina Sipa?' Then, shriller than all the rest, Maria Macapa screamed, "'Oh, Miss Sipa, come up here quick. Your lottery ticket has won five thousand dollars.'" End of chapter 6